Let's go ahead this evening and we're going to get started by opening our Bibles to the book of John and there to the sixth chapter. John chapter 6. We are going to begin this evening in the text, moving down to verse 26. John 6, 26. And we'll read through the first few verses of this chapter. In two studies prior to this, we read through the entire chapter. Let's begin, and then I'll make some announcements with regard to this study, and we'll move right into it. John 6, 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which, is per which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. Therefore they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now this conversation goes on from here, and we will be looking even this evening at verses following those verses that we have already read. But that begins our study as far as this text is concerned, in this uh, text. And as I've shared with you before, I believe this conversation, as is true with all the conversations that are recorded of Christ in Scripture with the people, is a powerful conversation. And it is addressing many biblical doctrines in this chapter. 
One of them in particular that is stressed in this chapter, as you will see as we go through it, is the sovereignty of God in regard to salvation. And there are multiple truths regarding that in this chapter that we will cover in time as we will move through it. Not only that, but we'll see how that, those truths affect other doctrines that are also communicated in this chapter. For instance, the security of the believer. Is a person, once he or she is saved, are they always saved? Or can they lose that salvation? Oftentimes, we only attribute the uh, eternal security of the believer to the fact that we're saved by grace through faith. And it's not of works. But there's actually much more to it than just that. It has to do with the sovereignty of God in regard to salvation. And the way we're going to approach the study in this chapter after this evening, we'll not really get specifically into the verses and the questions this evening, but we will be asking multiple questions, and then we will look to the chapter, and they'll be on the uh, presentation. We'll have the question, and then we'll go to the chapter and see the specific verses in the chapter that answer the question. So, keep Keep that in mind. That'll be the format that we'll use. We'll display a question, and then we'll look at the specific verses that answer the question. Now, one of the reasons why we're following that format is this. I want you to be able to see that. These are questions that are often asked about salvation. And we need to be able, individually as Christians, to, for the sake of our own faith, and then for communicating the truth to others, be able to point to the Bible for the answer. It's really that simple. And another truth with regard to this is, as we mentioned a few Wednesdays ago, whenever God speaks to His people in the written Word, He speaks plainly and clearly. You don't have to hold your Bible upside down to read it. You don't have to X out every third letter in every you know two-syllable word and then try to unscramble the code, the Bible doesn't come to us coded. It comes to us clearly. Whenever Jesus spoke to the people and He spoke Aramaic, He spoke a language that they understood, that they could relate to. Whenever the New Testament writers and the Old Testament writers wrote out the Bible as God moved them through the work of the Holy Spirit, they wrote it in a language that the people could understand. God wants His people to know His Word. We don't have to spiritualize the text. There are texts in Scripture that address spiritual things, no doubt. But there are texts that are literal, and whenever we come to the Bible, that's how we want to interpret it. We understand whenever Jesus says in this chapter, He's the bread of life, and later in this chapter, which we haven't read yet, but will, He said you must eat his body, and drink his blood. We understand what is meant by that. We don't have to go off into some strange twist of doctrines to console a mind that's unwilling to receive the Word of God as it is. The Bible explains itself. And we'll see that as we move through this. So, what I would like to do now, as we begin this study, 
I'm going to begin it with kind of, as you can see over here on the overhead, uh, an overview, in particular with the sovereignty of God, that this, this chapter deals with. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read through this overview, just as you have it there, and see it there. And then we're going to look in the chapter at the very specific verses from which I have drawn these conclusions so that you can see them there. And then, as I mentioned, Lord willing, next week we'll move right into the question. So let's begin. And let me mention this to you so that we can keep the continuity. If you have a question or a comment during the presentation, I'm going to ask you just to write it down and save it to the very end. And then I'll give you some time or opportunity at the end to ask any questions. That way we can keep the flow and continuity, continuity of, the, of the study going. So, let's begin. From John 6, it is evident that the Father intended to save some people for Himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation of the world. In eternity past, He gave these to Christ. In time, He sent Christ to give His life for them. Christ came and did the will of the Father by giving His flesh, that is, His death on the cross, so that those whom the Father brings to Him will possess eternal life and will be resurrected. All those whom the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ, and no one can come to Christ unless it has been granted them from the Father to come to Christ. Therefore, only those the Father gives to Christ come to Christ. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, gives them life that they may believe in Christ. It is against the reason of this chapter that God, in giving the true bread in the death of Christ, intended to give that bread for anyone but those he had given to Christ, brings to Christ, teaches, and grants to come to Christ. It would have been against the will of God for Christ to have died for anyone but those for whom God intended he die for, and against the will of God for the Spirit to give life to anyone but those for whom God intended to give life life. Now, apart from a couple of grammatical errors there I just saw, we're going to move into looking at the specific statements and verses in the text from which they've been drawn. Primarily, we will be looking at verses in John 6. There are some of these things that John 6 does not explicitly state but we can understand from bringing in other texts of Scripture, and that's what we're going to do this evening. And we'll start with the very first statement. From John 6, it is evident that the Father intended to save some people for Himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation of the world. How do we know that here in John 6? Well, the Bible says, look at John 6 and verse 32. 
For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Notice the phrase, gives life to the what? World. Now, we know for a fact that not every single individual in the world gets saved, right? Or is saved. Is that true? You don't even have to look out into the world to see that. You can know that from reading the Bible, right? You go over to Revelation chapter 20 and there are individuals that are judged in their sins and they're cast in the lake of fire. Those individuals came from where? The world. The text says Jesus gave His life for the world. And whenever you understand the significance of this chapter, and we'll come into that, that Christ in giving His life for the world, the giving of His life was effectual. That'll be clear in this chapter, and we'll see it as we come to it. In other words, He saved the world when He died. But we know He didn't save every one individual in the world. So how is it that He can say for the world? Well, let's look at the next verse. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6, 51. What is God talking about here whenever He says world? Well, we can fast forward to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, and there to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. If you have your Bible, turn over there. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. In Revelation 5, 9, it is a reference to a song sung in heaven. The words come from the mouths of angels. The words come from the mouths of the elders. So from Christians as well as angels. And it says they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you. In the context of Revelation 5, you is a reference to Jesus Christ. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Wow. Who did He purchase? He purchased people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That pretty much covers what? The world, right? Whenever you're talking about every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, you've just put your hands around the world. And what did Christ do? He purchased them. It doesn't say you made it possible for people from every tribe and tongue and nation to believe. That's not what the text says. That's what people say 
it says, or what they imply it says, but that's not it. What it says is that he purchased them. Through his death, he bought them. You'll understand that more as we move through our study in John 6, but for now acknowledge that it's evident whenever God is talking about the world here in John 6, he's referring to people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. What a praise that is. Let's move to the second statement of our study. The text, or the statement is, in eternity past, He, the Father, gave these to Christ. Now, I'm placing the emphasis here on the word gives. And we'll see that as we move through this. The text doesn't, in John 6, tell us absolutely when God gave them to Christ. But it does say they are given to Him. And we derive the timeline as when that happened from other texts of Scripture. But notice in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And verse 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. God has given a people to Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at another text of Scripture along this line, still in reference to the idea that in eternity past, God gave people to Christ, these that He saves. In John 17, verse 2, Jesus is praying here to the Father. And He says, Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all, and notice what He says to the Father, that to all whom you have given Him, He, referring to Himself, may give eternal life. So in this prayer that Jesus prays to the Father, He's acknowledging that the Father has given Him these people. In John 10, 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep. Notice this. I have other sheep. I possess other sheep. They're mine which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Referring to the Gentiles there, most likely. Another text in John 10, jump down if you're there, to verse 26. In that same conversation Jesus was having in John 10, He says, but you do not believe because you are not, and notice this, of my sheep. He's talking about someone he possesses. My sheep. He says these individuals, some of them had not believed because he said they were not of his sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now notice this in verse 29. My father 
Who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 10, 26-29. So, when was it that the Father gave the sheep to Jesus Christ? We know beyond the shadow of any doubt that they were given to Him. And they were given in the past sometime. Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, notice what we have here. God, here in Ephesians 1, 4, speaking about Christ, says, just as He, that is the Father, chose us in Him, that is Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So when did this transaction of the Father giving the Son the sheep take place? Sometime in eternity past. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. It was a transaction that was undertaken by God in eternity past. Before creation. Before the foundation of of the world. Let's move to our next statement. In time, He, the Father, sent Christ to give His life for them. How do we know that? Back to John chapter 6. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. The Father gives the true bread. What is the true bread, or who is the true bread? Well, as we read just a moment ago, Jesus said that He is the bread. And whenever you move down to verse 41, I'll ask you to do that. Jesus um, said in verse 35 that He is the bread of life. And whenever you come to verse 41, the text says, therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. In John 6, 51, Jesus again stated it. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whenever Jesus talks about giving His flesh, He's talking about His death on the cross. He used the same type of phrase whenever He was uh, instituting the Lord's Supper. Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Which is given for you. The idea is that bread represented His body that would eventually be crucified on the cross. So God in time sent Christ and Christ came and died on the cross so that those who believe may have life. He gave His life for them. 
That's a statement that's stated multiple times throughout the New Testament. We're familiar with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but has everlasting life. The next statement, Christ came and did the will of the Father by giving His flesh, that is, death on the cross, so that those whom the Father brings to Him will possess eternal life and will be resurrected. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now, that's an interesting verse because I've actually had well-meaning Christians come to me and say, it is clear that at some points in time, the will of Christ was against the will of the Father. Now, in human terms and biblical terms, let me tell you what that equates to. Anytime your will and my will is against the Father, for the most part, it ends in one word, sin. Okay? Sin. Jesus was simply saying, and we know from other texts, that He was doing the will of the Father. In John 4, He says, My meat is to do the will of the Father. The idea there is, by nourishment, His will was 100% in tune with the Father. Yes, there were aspects of the Father's will that as a man Christ didn't know, but it was never His will or intention to act contrary to them. Never. There was one point, as you know, Jesus said, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, expressing, My will is what you will. So, He says again, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, and notice this, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The will of the Father was that the Son come and die for His sheep, and those for whom He died, they are those who were and will be, actually, resurrected. There's no doubt about it in this text. And that was an act of obedience of Christ. Our next verse John, or excuse me, Matthew 5, 17 through 18. We're pulling from some other texts in Scripture here because I want you to see this, how important this is, this aspect of Christ doing the will of the Father. And how it not only is something that is important in the New Testament, but it reaches clear back into the Old Testament. Jesus began His ministry by stating that truth. He said in Matthew 5:17 and 18 on the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, 
he told the people, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Let me give you a reason why he made that statement right there in the context of Matthew chapter 5. The people up to this particular point in time were used to hearing the Old Testament quoted and read to them. They would gather together in the synagogues and they could hear that read. But then as it was explained, it was explained in a way different from what God meant. And because many of them weren't carrying around a scroll of the Old Testament, all 39 books of the Old Testament, it was difficult for them to get that all together and draw some conclusions by comparing Scripture with Scripture. It's kind of like the Roman Catholic Church when they didn't want the people to have the Bible in their hands so they could compare Scripture with Scripture. And it kind of came down to, you're just going to have to believe what you believe based on what I say. And Jesus, knowing that, didn't want the people to think, aha, he's saying different things different from what we've heard. As a matter of fact, if you go and you read in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, you will hear Jesus say these statements. You have heard that it has been said, and then he will quote an Old Testament text. And then immediately after quoting the Old Testament text, he will use a contrast and he will say, but I say to you. Whenever it came to that contrast, he was warning the people up front with this introduction to it. I don't want you to think I'm contradicting the Old Testament. I'm not. What he was contradicting was the scribes and the Pharisees and their explanations of the Old Testament text. You have heard that it has been said. Usually whenever Jesus was quoting the Old Testament directly, he would say something like, it is written, or the New Testament says, it is written. However, in that case, he's talking about the explanation from the scribes and Pharisees, as opposed to what God really meant whenever He said what He said. So Jesus says here, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That only makes sense, doesn't it? If Jesus came to do the Father's will, and the Father's will is expressed in the Old Testament in a multitude of places, then it only makes sense that He came to fulfill what God said would happen. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Christ did the will of the Father. Look with me to Luke 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man, notice this, what? Will be accomplished, right? They will be. 
Jesus introduced his entire ministry by telling the people, do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so here at the end of his ministry, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. And whenever we do, all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And then he says in verse 32, for, we, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit on. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. You know, people oftentimes think whenever Christ went to the garden and prayed, Father, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. They often conclude, and that incorrectly, that he was talking about the cross passing from him. He knew that was stated explicitly clear in the Old Testament. There is no doubt about it. And he reiterated that right here. As I've mentioned before, he wasn't talking about the cross. I believe in that context, he's specifically speaking about various kinds of trials that he's happening, that are happening to him or were happening to him right there in that garden. He says, this cup, this cup, not something in the future from then, but this cup, what he was going on and through right then at the moment. He wasn't backing out of the Father's will. He didn't know all the things, we know that, that were he was to experience with regard to suffering. Many of them, and he knew he was to suffer, there is no doubt there, but the specifics were not obviously in his mind as a man. And that's what he prayed for there in the garden. Let's go to the next slide. The next paragraph in the initial presentation. Therefore, when Jesus had received, or the next uh, verse, John 19.30, excuse me, with regard to accomplishing the Father's will. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Whenever Jesus said it is finished, he was talking about he accomplished all things up to that point that he was to accomplish. So much so he could say, it's done. It's finished. Now this next text of Scripture is from Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We're going to bring some other verses in here. But notice Romans 1, 3 and 4. Concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The significance of this verse is that the Holy Spirit, according to the text, verse 4, by resurrecting Christ from the grave, was declaring Christ as the Son. 
And that declaration from God demonstrated God's acceptance of Christ's death. Before Christ got, died, Jesus was baptized, and we know at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, a voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In Matthew 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice spoke again from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God was pleased with his Son. He made this statement before his death, and he declared Christ to be his Son after his death through the resurrection, just and thus endorsing the death of Christ, accepting it as Jesus said, finished and accomplishing his will. Next paragraph. All those whom the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ, and no one can come to Christ unless it has, is granted them from the Father to come to Christ. Those are, that's a statement basically taken right out of the text. Verse 37 of John 6 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I'll ask you one of the questions that eventually will come up. Whenever you read that statement in John chapter 6, verse 7, verse 37, is there anyone that the Father gives to Christ who will not come to Christ? Look at that verse to answer the question. Is there anyone that the Father gives to Christ who will not come to Christ? Look at that verse. The answer is right there. All that the Father gives me will come to me. How many that the Father gives to Christ will come to Him? All of them. Not 99% of them, right? Not the majority of them. Not many of them. All of them, Jesus said. So whenever someone debates this, they're not debating a person other than Christ Himself. Is anyone able to come to the Father in and of their own volition without the work of God in their lives? Look at John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That answers the question. No one can. Here's another conclusion we can draw from that. Therefore, only those the Father gives to Christ comes to Christ. Come to Christ. And he was saying, for this reason, in verse 65, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. 
pretty straightforward, isn't it? No one can come to Christ unless it has been granted him from the Father. Just impossible. We could look at many other reasons why, but this is a good one in here, isn't it? The fact that Jesus said it. Then, the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, gives them life that they may believe in Christ. Verse 63 says, It is the Spirit, Jesus speaking said, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Whenever Jesus made that little statement there, and He said, the flesh profits nothing, back up and look at those verses again in verse 65. No one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him from the Father. We all start out in the flesh, right? True? Not physical flesh, but spiritual flesh. The spiritual flesh is the lost state of humanity. Our own lostness. We don't come into the world saved. We don't come into the world born again. We come into the world dead in sin. And the operating principle within the person who is dead in sin is referred to in Scripture as the flesh. The flesh. It's, that's the characteristic of the nature of humanity without Christ. They operate according to the flesh. And it says, Jesus Himself made the statement there in verse 63, the flesh profits nothing. You know, there are religions all around the world, some of them very prominent, that believe every time a human is conceived and born, they start a quest seeking for God. That it's innate within them to find, to search out, God. You won't find that in Scripture. God says clearly, there's none that seek after God. In the flesh, they run from God. Man's primary business after birth is to flee from the light. That's the objective. So much so that they loved the darkness and they tried to hide themselves. That's why they crucified Christ. Because they hated the light. And finally, the conclusion in that introductory paragraph in our study of John 6 is in the light of this chapter, it's against sound reasoning that God, in giving the true bread in the death of Christ, intended to give that bread for anyone but those He gives to Christ, brings to Christ, teaches, and grants to come to Christ. It would have been against the will of the Father for Christ to have died for anyone, but for those whom God intended He die for. You see, Jesus understood that His death on the cross was not merely an attempt to save people. It wasn't something He was doing to make salvation possible. 
It was something he knew he would do to secure salvation. Because that was God's plan. That was God's price. And Jesus was going to pay it, and he did. For him to do otherwise would have been against the will of God. For him to have died for anyone but those for whom God intended he die for. And against the will of God for the Spirit to give life to anyone but for those whom God intended to give life. You see, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all in absolute one accord. They're all in agreement. In the death of Christ, very specifically, they were all working together. You can see that in the book of Hebrews, and then we'll get ready to close. I'll give you a moment for any questions or comment. But look with me at Hebrews for just a moment. And there to chapter 9, verse 14. You're going to see in this single verse all the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, at work in the death of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Son gave His life and He did so through the power of the eternal Spirit and He gave His life to God on the cross. He was offered up as a sacrifice to God. I know there are individuals within evangelicalism today who claim what is referred to as the ransom theory, that Christ in offering up Himself on the cross was actually making a payment of ransom to Satan. There's a movie that's very popular, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's based on that idea of redemption. And that idea of redemption, again, it may sound dramatic, it may make a good movie, but it's not true. The Bible says Christ offered Himself to God, not to the devil. Well, We've gone through that introduction to these texts. And next week, we'll start into the series of questions. But for now, does anyone have any questions or comments? Any questions or comments? Okay, well, then let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll be closed. Father, thank You in Jesus' name for Your mercy and grace. As we continue in this study, I pray that You would bless us on high with wisdom and discernment in this chapter, in Your truth, that our lives would be enriched for Christ's cause. In His name we pray. Amen.